The only reason that we have a purpose in gathering is because he is alive. We have every reason to rejoice. We have purpose in being glad because he lives. He is ruling and reigning as king over the universe right now. If you look around the room, we come from different backgrounds, different places, different languages, even some of us, different countries. We have no connection apart from one thing, Jesus Christ. He is what unifies us, and it is for him that we gather, and because of him that we sing. And now, I would ask that you would please open your Bibles as we read of him. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. If you're visiting with us, or if this is your first time here, I just want to let you know what we are about to do. In just a moment, I'm going to read to you from the Bible, and then I'm going to explain passages to you from the Bible, and then I'm going to seek to apply that passage to to your life from the Bible. The only thing of value that I have to give to you is God's Word. It is true. It is life-giving. It is powerful. It's as authoritative as if Jesus Christ was standing here right now communicating verbally to you in the flesh. I am here to preach the Word because there is nothing else of value that I have to give. That's what our entire gathering revolves around. That is why when we pray, you will hear our prayers are saturated with the scriptures. And when we sing, you will hear that the songs are saturated with the word of God. And now, as we come to the proclamation of the word, we are going to be walking verse by verse through a portion of scripture because that is where we find truth. And we do this because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our passage of scripture this morning comes to us from Matthew chapter 28. Just for a little bit of context, let me share with you how chapter 27 concludes. If you were here on Friday, you heard Gideon just perfectly read that entire chapter as we heard about the death of Christ. And then we hear about the burial of Christ. And we even hear about the securing of the tomb. In fact, the very end of chapter 27 concludes by the revelation of the heightened state of security that was placed around the tomb. It says, They went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This man, even in death, they viewed, required a guard, required watch. So Jesus was buried on Friday afternoon. He remained in the grave the entirety of Saturday, and now our text opens Sunday morning, that very first resurrection day. Please follow along in your own copy of scriptures as I read to you from God's word, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask you that today you would open our eyes wider to the majesty of your Son, our King, Jesus Christ. May these truths comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. May you send the Spirit to bring about conviction and transformation. And ultimately, God, we pray that you would be glorified and honored through the preaching and the response to your word today. I pray, Lord, that you would give me the right words to say, that you would give me clarity and compassion as I speak. And I ask God, especially for those who do not know you that are with us today, that you might use these words of Scripture to open the eyes and bring life to them. May there be resurrection in this room today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me take you back now to the year 1999. It was a strange time. People were prepping for Y2K, they were collecting Beanie Babies and Pokemon for the first time. Uh, The young people were wearing baggy clothes, and Star Wars was back in theaters after 16 years of hiatus. Ricky Martin, of course, was living La Vida Loca, but there was one surprise, one thing nobody saw coming, and that was a movie that took Hollywood by storm and changed storytelling for a generation, and that movie was called The Sixth Sense. You probably didn't anticipate that I would be preaching and including this movie in our sermon for the day, but it is a movie that is known for having one of the greatest twist endings of all time. That's if you haven't seen it, and if nobody has spoiled it for you. I think this is when I first understood what spoilers were, because somebody told me the ending of the movie before I saw the movie. And so the entire time I watched it, I had lost all element of surprise. It was drained away from the film for me. And I didn't enjoy it as much as most people because I did not get that special shock that most people experienced. Now, if you don't know the twist ending, you're kind of 23 years late. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You can find out on your own if you want. But I want you to know that there are many people that treat the resurrection story in a similar way. When I read Matthew 28 moments ago, you might have been subconsciously thinking, okay, yeah, I know what's going to happen. The ladies are going to get there. They're going to find the tomb is empty. And yeah, they're going to figure out that Jesus is alive. Okay, I know the end of the story. The shock is gone for me. There's no more oomph to that resurrection narrative. It's just something I already know. I get it. Perhaps for you, there's no shock. There's no surprise. There's no awe. But you need to know that the resurrection of Christ is not just some story or some plot of a silly movie. It's not something that has no bearing on your life like the sixth sense. The purpose of your existence hangs on the balance of this passage. The point of your life depends on whether or not Jesus came out of that grave. 
everything from the minute choices of your daily life to the grand expanse of your eternal destiny all hinge on this one thing. Is that tomb empty? Is Jesus alive? The question is not, do you know about the resurrection? You're here on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. My assumption is, and I think it's a good assumption, that every single person in this room knows about the resurrection. Intellectually, if you were asked, what's going on there with that, that, uh, that grave that was there on the side of that hill over in Israel 2,000 years ago, you would say, it's empty, Jesus is alive. But that's not the question. It's not the question, do you know about the resurrection? The question is, have you encountered the risen Christ? Because if you have, your life will be radically altered and will never be the same again. This is the question that you need to answer. And this is the question that I'm going to emphasize as we make our way through the scripture together. Have you encountered the risen Christ? Let's see how that occurs in our text this morning. There are multiple encounters that Jesus had with people after the resurrection. There are a variety of them scattered across the gospel accounts and even into 1 Corinthians. But Matthew only chooses to highlight two of them. In our text today, we find Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of John and James, making their way to the tomb, and they were going there to honor Jesus. Think about it as you might go if you had a loved one who passed away, and you would go to the graveside. You would lay flowers on their tombstone. You would stand there and you would remember. You would think. You would cry. You would pray, perhaps, to the Lord regarding the blessing they had been in your life. These ladies were going there to mourn and to honor him to memorialize the memory of Jesus. But it wasn't just any body that they were going to see. They were going to see the body of Jesus, a man who had been executed by the Romans just days before. He had been put to death by insistence of the Sanhedrin. This is Jesus that they were going to visit. And the disciples, what were they doing? They were cowering together in the upper room. They were fearful of doing just what these ladies are doing. Why? Because they feared that the government might come for them next. If they take out the leader, might they not also take out the followers? But see the faith and the love of these women who prioritize going to the tomb in order that they might say their final goodbyes. Little did they know, they would not say their final goodbyes that day. As they made their way to the tomb, verse 2 tells us that there was a great earthquake. Does anybody remember about nine years ago there was a great earthquake in New York? Was anybody around for that? Grant fell out of his bed. I was in my office in Queens, and I thought my neighbor was throwing stuff off of his roof onto the roof of our office. That great earthquake was tiny. It was small, it was little, but it's a reminder. It's a reminder that really you're very small and the world around you that you think is so static and set in stone really can be shaken very rapidly. Well, these ladies are making their way there and there is a great earthquake. And they are perhaps reminded that even as the vibration of the tectonic shifting that would be in place could cause their world to crash around them. I don't want you to overlook this tiny little word here that he says before the earthquake comes. He says, behold. 
Three times we find that actually in this text. This word, behold, which means to open your eyes wider. Pay attention to this. This is important information. Be in awe. Behold, there was a great earthquake. Now, according to Matthew chapter 27, the previous chapter, when Jesus breathed his last, there was a massive earthquake. It literally says that it split the rocks that were around the cross. And it was that very earthquake that caused the centurion who oversaw the crucifixion to say, truly, this was the Son of God. It was owing to the earth's response to the breathing out of the last breath of Jesus that this man recognized the deity of Christ. That earthquake centered on the cross And now, just a couple of days later, there's another great earthquake in the region, and this time it's centered on the tomb where Jesus' body was buried. And Matthew informs us that this earthquake had a particular origin. It's not from some kind of mysterious thing below the earth, like volcanic activity. No, the reason this was caused was due to the fact that an angel arrived to prepare the tomb for visitors. And he arrived with such extreme explosiveness from heaven that it resulted in the ground trembling in response. Now, what did that look like? I have a hard time imagining it, but I imagine it being something like this. Whoosh! Boom! Right? There is an earthquake that is caused by the arrival of an angel. It seems that he was coming with rapid force in order to make way the tomb for these ladies who were arriving. This angel single-handedly eliminated the barrier that was placed there so that there would be no one entering the tomb. He removed that stone and rolled it away and then sat on top of it. This would have been a stone that would take 6 to 12 men to roll into place. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a rock that's you know, kind of on the edge of the... Um, of the parking areas in Queens that they put there so that you don't drive up onto people's grass. Have you seen those? When I worked in Queens at North Shore Baptist Church, there were a bunch of these stones that were placed there so that people would stop parking on the grass. And these stones were only about, you know, this big. I could not move many of those stones. Why? Well, I'm not that strong, but also because stones tend to be very heavy. And this stone was large enough to block the entire entryway of the tomb. It was probably somewhere between four and 8,000 pounds. And this angel just single-handedly rolls it out of the way and then plops himself down on top of it, and he sits there and waits. But the problem is there were already some people there when the angel arrived. There were guards posted to keep out anyone who would come near the tomb. And these men, the trained Roman soldiers, elite fighters... They took one look at that angel, and they literally fainted. It says they fell down like they were dead men. Now, some people, they faint easily. They see a little bug or a little bit of blood, and they pass out. I don't think that's what these men were like. These were Roman elites. I think they probably had a stronger tolerance. Yet, when they gazed on the image of this angel, their minds literally blanked and they went comatose as if dead. Well, what were they looking at? Matthew doesn't give us a lot of description of this angel. It just describes his appearance as being like lightning. Now, what does lightning look like? 
To be honest, I'm not really 100% sure if there's any other way to describe lightning than that it looks like lightning. But if I had to guess what this angel appeared to be like, I would suggest that lightning is incredibly powerful and intensely pure and electrifyingly attention-grabbing. And I assume that's what he means by the angel looked like lightning. Now imagine being these women. They're making their way to the tomb. That day they're expecting to see Jesus dead, laying there, wrapped up, embalmed. And they were probably doing their best to hold back sobs and tears as they rounded the corner into the location of the tomb. And Mark 16.3 tells us that as they made their way there, they were discussing this question of who it was that would help them to roll away the stone so that they could get inside. And imagine their shock. When they arrive, they turn that last corner, and instead of seeing a tomb that was closed and guards that were posted, instead they arrive there, and they find not one man dead lying on the slab inside of the tomb, but the guards appear to be dead laying outside of the tomb, and the tomb is already open. These women were not deterred by the threat of the government. They did not stop when they felt the earthquake, but what happened now when they encountered this terrifying angel? Well, thankfully, the angel initiated the conversation, as angels often do in Scripture, by saying, do not be afraid. Now, there's a lot of reasons to freak out in that moment. The body's on the ground. This massive stone had been rolled away. The the tomb appears from their vantage point probably to be at least affected, if not emptied. This being in front of them looks like lightning and is now talking to them. There's a lot of reasons to freak out, but they don't panic because their fears are relieved by the very next words of the angel, which are, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Now, what's the reason that you have for courage? There's only one, and that's because Jesus is alive. This is a glorious truth that resounds throughout the ages, that you can face anything because Jesus is alive. You don't need to fear. And then the angel adds these three little words, as he said. Jesus had predicted his death on multiple occasions. This was not supposed to be a surprise in the sense that he had already told his followers, this is why he came, this is what was going to happen. He knew that he would die, and he had already told them that he would rise. Matthew 16, 21 tells us of one such example when Jesus shared this information with them. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Notice that it says he began to show them. This in Matthew 16 is the first time, but it certainly would not be the last time. He continued this discussion and we know of at least three other blatant occasions when Jesus said something very similar. And each time it was closer to the cross, it came with more detail. He had not been ambiguous about his purpose to come and to die, nor had he obscured the fact that he would rise. He is not here, he is risen as he said. He always does what he says he will do. Then the angel invites them into the very tomb where Jesus was laid to see that the body is no longer there. But they were not permitted to stay very long. They had a job to do. The angel commanded them, now go quickly and inform the disciples that he has been risen from the dead and behold is going before you into Galilee and there you will see him. And he said, see, I've told you. In other words, 
That's all I've got to tell you. My message is complete. That's the entirety of what I was told to correspond. It's a very natural thing for us to ask, how do they respond to this task? If you are given a task, you will probably respond differently depending on who gives you that task. You will respond differently based upon the importance of the task. We display our value systems by the urgency or expediency which we place on doing what we are told to do. These ladies heard the command to go quickly, and they did. It says that they ran to tell the disciples. I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that these ladies were not accustomed to running. I don't think that they had practiced for marathon conditions, but they were booking it down that path. They were going as fast as they could go, and as they go, Matthew tells us that they were still experiencing an element of fear, but now that fear is mixed with immense joy. But as they were going, as they are already running in the direction of the disciples, they are stopped in their tracks by someone much greater than the man who was wearing lightning, much more than that being that produced earthquakes. It says, and behold, Jesus met them. Now, if you are a Christian, this is part of your story as well. There was a time when Jesus stopped you in your tracks and he met you. He revealed himself to you. He opened your eyes to understand the faith and to follow after him. And consider the way that Jesus greets them. He simply says, greetings. Or if you have a King James Version or one of the older translations, you might see that it says Jesus responded to them and, or Jesus said to them, hail. Just let me tell you, that is the most generic form of greeting that exists in Hebrew. It's kind of like Jesus says, hey. These ladies have just discovered that Jesus is alive. They come running down the path, and Jesus just appears in front of them and says, Hey, greetings. I mean, I don't know if there's any more nonchalant response to an event than this. He didn't come to them with fireworks. He's not wearing some kind of clothing that makes him appear like lightning, or he's not coming with earthquakes. Do you remember when God spoke to Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 19? There, he's on the mountain, and, he's, and it says in, in chapter 19, uh, God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came the sound of a low whisper. He's not all about the flashbang explosions. He comes, just as he always did, gentle and lowly. Jesus was not in the whoosh or the rumble or the glow of the angel's arrival in his presence. When Jesus appears to them, it seems so simple. And he just says, greetings. Now, for the remainder of our time together, what I want you to see are three things from the rest of our text. Remember our question, have you encountered the risen Christ? These three final points of emphasis should help you to discern whether or not you've encountered him. First, consider the response of these women to Jesus when he arrived. It says, they approached him. 
took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. The only way that I can imagine them having the ability to reach the feet of Jesus would be for them to literally get down on their faces before Jesus, take hold of his feet, and worship him. They displayed both with their words and their posture, and then later with the actions of their life, that he truly is their Lord and that he is their master. They're not interested anymore in their own reputation. Doing that would be very disreputable in that society. They're not interested in their own comfort any longer. They get down on their hands and knees and touch a man's feet. I don't know about you, but you don't want to touch my feet. (laughs) And these ladies, they get down and they touch not just feet, but feet that have the nail scars in them. They get down and touch the wounds of Jesus. They get down there and they hold his feet and they worship him. They just wanted to give Jesus all honor and glory and praise. Have you encountered the risen Christ? If your life is not marked with a constant pattern of worship, then perhaps you have not met him. You see, if you were just happy to visit church once a week or a couple of times a year and sing a few songs or listen to somebody talk for a while and then go out into the world and act as if there is no God in heaven, then you have not yet encountered Christ. Is it the pattern of your day to approach Jesus and to bow your heart before him? Or do you go through life just living however you please and only every once in a while taking a moment to acknowledge, oh yes, there is a Jesus who lives and rules. If you have encountered the risen Christ, there can be no other result than worship. This is not an isolated incident. As I said before, there are only two resurrection encounters in Matthew's gospel. And consider how he writes of the others who saw him later. Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. And when the disciples saw him, they worshipped him. Every time someone encounters Jesus after the resurrection, this is the response. Have you encountered him? What about Paul who was traveling on the way to Damascus and he was going there for the purpose of arresting and killing Christians? What happened when he encountered the risen Christ? His life was turned so radically upside down that he became one of the very people that he persecuted. He dedicated his life to spreading the message that he had previously sought to quench. And why did he do this? Because he encountered the risen Christ. It will transform your perspective of Jesus. It will transform your understanding of self. You will no longer live for the things of this world, but you will live for him. Have you encountered the risen Christ? The second thing that I want you to notice here is that Jesus commands them to go. Their responsibility now is to take the message of the risen Christ to others. Before the cross, there were occasions when Jesus would say, don't tell anybody what I've done. He would heal somebody, or he would go to a place, or he would do something, and he would say, just don't say anything about this to anyone. That's what theologians call the messianic secret. And he would do this, it says, because his time had not yet come. It was not yet time to go to the cross. But now, on this side of the cross, Jesus desires for us to always and forever inform others, inform everyone that Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Again, there is only one other resurrection encounter in Matthew's gospel account, and he tells the disciples there also to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That is the mission of every disciple, that 
is the mission of this church. If you are in Christ, if you have encountered him, that is your mission. Have you encountered the resurrected Jesus? Do you care to tell anyone about who he is and what he has done? One of the great realities of life is that you talk and you talk about things that matter to you. You talk about the things that you care about. You talk about the things that you find to be important or that you enjoy. You talk about things in life that give you pleasure or comfort or hope. Do you talk about Jesus to anyone? Is it, not, it is not only the stated mission of God's people. It should also be the desire of your heart if it is good news. If you have encountered the risen Christ who was raised for you, how can you not also respond by telling others? So we've seen that those who have encountered the risen Christ will have their lives committed to worship of the Savior and also to going and telling in evangelism to the lost. And perhaps you are saying to yourself, look, I'm not actually a believer. I've never truly had that experience of saving faith in my life. I've never encountered the risen Christ. Perhaps you came here this way, this morning, knowing that you were not a Christian, or perhaps you came to that conclusion over the course of this sermon. Either way, I want you to know that there is hope, and there is hope because Jesus is alive. Consider this. The angel gave these women a message to deliver. He told them, here's what I want you to say to the disciples. The angel said that. Well, then Jesus interrupts their mission And he also gives them a message to tell the disciples. And it's interesting because those two messages are almost 100% identical. There is one colossal difference between the two. You see, the angel said, go and tell the disciples. But Jesus says, go tell my brothers. Do you understand the incredible weight of those words? To this point... In the gospel accounts, Jesus has never called the disciples his brothers. To this point, he has called them disciples, which means students or followers. Some of them were called apostles, which means sent ones or ones that I send out on my behalf. Peter, he called the rock. James and John, he called sons of thunder. But he did not call them brothers. In fact, for most of his ministry, Jesus called them servants, But then at the Last Supper, he says these words, John 15, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. At this point, they have gotten closer. I did call you servants, now I call you friends. But he still, up to that point, the night before he was crucified, still does not call them brothers. It was not until after the cross that Jesus could gather in his adopted members of the family. By his death, he has redeemed those who were far away, those who were unworthy, those who were guilty. And he says to sinners like you and me, you are my brothers, you are my sisters. Think for a moment about these disciples. When Jesus was arrested, what did they do? Every one of them ran away. And Peter, well, he denied Jesus three times. And think about the fact that in order for Peter to even deny him, at least he was in the room where things were happening. The rest of them, where were they? At least Peter followed close behind and was interested in putting his ear next to the door. The others were out in the midst of the night, running and fearing arrest. Where were they? 
the disciples were scattered like sheep when their shepherd was struck. And then on that glorious Sunday morning, when these ladies come to the tomb to honor Jesus, where are they? They're hiding. They're cowering. They are fearing. They are forgetting that Jesus promised that he would rise again. We could go through their stories and you would see that these guys, these disciples, these men, they are not prized disciples. They failed constantly. They sinned. They put their collective foot in their mouths. They were not part of the family by virtue of their obedience or their boldness or their effort. They were brothers because God loved him and set his affection upon them. They were brothers because Jesus died for their sins. They were brothers because Jesus was raised for their justification. Perhaps you have not yet encountered the risen Christ, but here is the good news. You can encounter him today. He is not going to appear to you like he did to these ladies while you are driving home. He is not going to communicate to you with his verbal voice. He is not going to come to you in signs or dreams or visions. He has communicated to you now through his word. And here's what we learn about encountering Jesus from Ephesians chapter 2, from this good book. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you are not in Christ, if you have not yet encountered the risen Jesus, then notice that you are one of these children of wrath. You are one of these sons of disobedience. Notice that your condition, according to this text, is simple. It says you are dead, perished, deceased, departed, kicked the bucket, kaput, finito, personally extinct. You are absolutely lifeless if you have not yet encountered the risen Christ. You were dead, but not physically dead. Even this text would acknowledge that because it says, right after saying you were dead, that you walk in a pattern of life of sin, just like everyone before knowing Christ. Then there is this glorious break, a radical change of direction. To you who are still dead, consider what Christ's resurrection means according to the following verses. Ephesians 2.4 But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look, Jesus is alive and his mission was to make dead sinners like you and like me alive. If you have not yet encountered the risen Christ, then you are still a rebel. You are still an enemy against him. That's how the scripture defines you. And I want you to know, I want you to see for a moment, consider for a moment, the most committed fighting forces in the history of the modern world. Consider for a moment World War II. For those who know history, you will know that the Japanese army was an incredible military force. And the main reason they were so powerful was that they were ideologically driven to the point that they would rather die. They would rather commit suicide than be captured or fail. They were driven to victory. 
And if you read about the Japanese forces in World War II, you will know that they were absolutely vicious in pursuit of their goals. They wanted to dominate Asia and potentially the world. They were a powerful army committed to their way. Yet, when they saw the mushroom clouds, or even the picture of the mushroom clouds over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, these people who were absolutely committed to their own way immediately and unconditionally surrendered. Why did that happen? It happened because these warriors who were dedicated fully to their own cause finally encountered a power that they could not compete with. They saw something greater. They saw something they could not oppose. Well, the resurrection, it displays for you the power of God. You have an enemy. The Bible tells us death is your enemy. It is the last enemy to be destroyed. And there is only one who can conquer. If you have encountered the risen Christ, then he will bring you to total surrender. But not because of power used against you, like the atomic bomb was used against Japan, but because of power that was used for you. Consider how Ephesians 2 concludes. He made us alive so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, why did Jesus rise again? There's a lot of ways that we could answer that question, but one of them is right here. So that God might show kindness to you. The power of Christ in his resurrection stands as an eternal display of God's love for his people. Jesus came to die and to rise so that you might experience the immeasurable riches of his grace. And you can have this kindness shown to you, as it says here, only one way, in Christ. So have you encountered Christ? Are you saved? Have your sins been forgiven? Has your life been changed? Believe in the gospel. Believe that Jesus died for sinners like you and like me and repent of your sins and turn away from them. Trust in our resurrected Lord to forgive and he is faithful to do it. Let me close our time together with one final verse. Romans chapter 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that Jesus is alive. We thank you, Lord, that he is our king. We thank you, God, that we can hear of him today and know with certainty that that tomb is empty, that it was vacated, that he is now ruling and reigning as our Lord forever. We thank you, God, that he is the first fruits from the dead, that those who follow after him will likewise be raised. We thank you, God, that there is hope in Jesus Christ, that there is comfort in Jesus Christ, that there is joy in Jesus Christ because he is alive. So God, for everyone in the room who knows you, I pray that our life would be like these women who, after encountering Jesus, both worshiped him faithfully and told of him faithfully. And I ask also, Father, for those in the room who do not yet know you, who are estranged from you, who are rebels against you, who are enemies of the cross. I pray for those who are still sons of disobedience, who are living as though you are not their ruler or their king. I pray today would be the day they bow the knee and that they would acknowledge that you are Lord over their life. I pray that today Jesus would encounter them just like he did these ladies on that, on that walk back to Jerusalem. 
I pray that he would invade their life and declare himself, to reveal himself, that they might know him and the power of his resurrection. And we pray that all in the precious and holy name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Amen.